This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. Welcome to another edition of America Changed Forever. Or as we like to say around here, ACF. What we had this past week was another court battle involving the former president, Donald Trump. A federal judge has ordered the unsealing of a more detailed inventory of what was taken. Trump's lawyers clashed with Justice Department officials in court for the first time since last month's search. The federal probe has already revealed the presence of hundreds of documents marked classified in Trump's possession. Then all of a sudden you're leaving and stuff gets packed up and sent. All sorts of stuff. You know, mostly the boxes... Uh, pictures and newspapers and shirts and gear and, you know, golf balls. You're going to be able to see what Trump had and that it was more than just keepsakes and and, uh, mementos. It was serious national security material. And we had court filings from the Department of Justice. DOJ officials tell me that they don't like to talk about ongoing investigations. And that's what this one is involving the former president. I'm sure you've seen the image of the top secret documents spread out on the former president's office and Mar-a-Lago. Those aren't personal documents. Those are government-owned documents, despite what anybody says. Government documents. And so the question is, did the former president willfully commingle those top secret documents with some personal items to hide them from investigators? That word obstruction, we saw it in this government filing. Not to mention one of his attorneys signed a document saying to investigators, yeah, yeah, we've turned everything over. And that was in response to a subpoena before the search. Harry Littman, former federal prosecutor. Harry, thanks for being with us. Hey, good to be here, Jeff. Let's let's go in depth on the government filing in response to the former president's request for a special master, because I, I really think that document is interesting because it says so little but it also says a lot. And a lot of what it says is in that picture. And I've been saying this on television, that picture speaks volumes. Talk about a a thousand words. That one, a lot of this is legal, not jargon, but it's legal argument, but then you have that picture and that is vivid. It really right away gives you a sense of what was going on down there. So I agree. But I also want to 
say that their filing says more than that. They have a whole sort of 10 pages of facts that push back very forcefully on the idea in uh, the Trump papers that it was all this sort of cooperative, oh, you know, gentlemanly, come on in, take whatever you want. Would you like some tea kind of encounters? Um, on the contrary, it was nothing but um, uh, pushback and avoidance and finally concealment uh, all the way through. And the reason they were able to do this is another it was another self-inflicted wound by Trump. He offered up this motion. They really did go deep. They asked for double the normal pages, came in with 40 pages and and clobbered him both in the facts and then gave legal arguments you know we'll see what the judge says this afternoon but it seems to me that they're pretty hard to rebut and definitely the filing last night from trump didn't do very much yeah, let, me, let me just let me just clarify my statement when i when i said and and i'm doing this for my followers on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, you know, I don't want them to get the wrong idea. I mean, what I, what I mean by, you know, when I said it, it doesn't say a lot, but then, you know, in a way it speaks volumes that not only that picture, but that filing. And I, and I say that because I've talked to sources who are, briefed on the investigation and and I asked one source listen is is that all you got what's in that filing and of course I know the answer to that because they're never going to put everything they know into a filing like this they're going to save it for the courtroom but this person's response Harry was no there's a lot more to come um, and I think that document is sort of another taste of what the government has. And when I read it, Harry, you know, I was thinking, why doesn't the former president just, you know, find a way <laughs> to bring the temperature down with the government, you know, find a way to reach out, uh, maybe start thinking plea deal. What do you think, Harry? Well, so on your first point, I get what you're saying now, and you're right. They, uh, they, it's just a taste. But of course, normally they don't even give us a taste. And it was Trump's filing that gave them the opportunity, even the obligation, because, you know, they like to talk in court. But he did his talking in court, so they were able to respond and really slap him up quite a bit. Um, trying to find a way to a plea deal. Wow. I, you know, I've, I've given up trying to psychoanalyze uh, Donald Trump long since, but man, that does not seem to be in his DNA to me. He's just spent a lifetime of attack, 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 even when he doesn't have the cards, but he doesn't, you know, he's facing much stronger forces than somebody across the table on some real estate deal in Manhattan. So I think his playbook is not so far anyway is really not serving him well but at the, I don't think he's got the flexibility to change direction uh you know the your the consequences as you're suggesting could be brutal but he's going to fight to the yeah, end Yeah and let's drill down on that because 
you bring up a great point. It, it is not in his DNA. In fact, he we heard this week and CBS News confirm that he hired the former Florida Solicitor General, who's known as a fighter. Uh, okay, okay, okay. We know that the former president, you know, his, I think his supporters used to say, if you, you know, if you throw the first punch, he's going to punch back. All right, whatever. Because this is such a serious case. And anybody else, if that were me, Facing this kind of evidence that we've seen bits and pieces of, I'd be freaking out. I'm not afraid to admit I would be freaking out. You in a small cell. Uh, yeah, you know, you they gave him so much rope. They gave him a year before he even sent anything uh, along. And that was, he makes it sound cooperative, that was only because they threatened to reveal it to Congress. And that's when the whole thing uh, turned, because then and only then did they realize what um, incredibly dangerous national defense stuff he had. And then it took a subpoena and and then a, a, a signed attestation. We've given you everything. And that turned out to be a lie. Uh, they, you, you're totally right about here about their kind of playing their cards close to the vest for the most part. There are two statements, kind of the most scary for Trump, in there on uh, and the, where it just says, "Upon further investigation, DOJ learned," and that's kind of code for they have people within his camp uh, it, telling them about that you know that he still has documents, maybe they're even in his desk, you know, and, and the like. But the the real um, point is he's it doesn't normally he's made a a lifetime and whether in as a businessman or president to say any kind of lie. And at worst, um, it revs up his supporters and just makes people, you know, fulminate more. But um, here it's different. He's in court. He's in federal court. And if you if his lawyers say things that are false or if he says things that are false, there really are, um, you know, consequences and dues to pay. So he he just doesn't distinguish between uh, a court of law and a court of public opinion, and it's really right, showing. Let's up. let's give him the benefit of the doubt. He is, it, yeah, wow. yeah. Let okay. let's <laughs> give him the benefit. Maybe, maybe. Huh? <laughs> All right, let's do it. It's a quite a thought experiment after seven yeah, yeah. years or whatever. Can, can, <laughs> let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Let's say he's innocent until proven guilty. Let's say that all oh, this is all a big misunderstanding. Somebody else packed those boxes and mixed in the top secret documents, and he didn't know they were there when the attorney that he hired signed that document saying that they'd turned everything over to the FBI, uh, to the department of justice. How do you, how do you, how do you defend him? I guess is what I'm asking. Right. I mean, I, I think the way you put it, if that's the scenario, I think the way you defend him and, um, there's some, there's some nervous, there are two nervous lawyers in Trump's camp now, including the one who signed it. You throw the lawyer under the bus completely. 
So there's the, the, the lawyer who signed that, Christina Baum. I mean, he can try to say, they told me, uh, why would I think that they hadn't complied? Now there's a problem here that he, that is the first thing the lawyer will say, which is his desk drawer. <laughs> they found a long, remember he was complaining about his passport. Well, they found along with his passport in his desk drawer, three of these documents. So he'll need an explanation for that and who was sort of putting them in there. Um, uh, that, that really makes it a hard sell, but yeah, I think Jeff, if it's something like that, or you want to try to sell to the court or a jury, something like that, you need someone to point the finger to. And I think those are the, the lawyers around him now, why of course they would do that, um, and, you know, threaten their whole professional lives. That's going to be a tough one. And of course, once you start in that direction, you're inviting the lawyers to turn against you. But yeah, so that would be one. I think I would probably also, you know, just be trying to, everyone knows he's not a detail guy, just be trying to uh, explain, well, yes, I, I mean, I knew what I had, but I, I didn't realize it wasn't okay until I, you know, I, we found out. And then I, I, I looked at the, pre I thought it was all right there's, to have presidential records around. All of this goes to, you know, ignorance of the law is no excuse, but some kind of theory where he um, is basically saying, you know, I did it, but I didn't have complete um, criminal intent. One other important point, if we're really talking about defending him in court, this would this is likely to be down in Florida. And, you know, you, you hope to get a real diehard Trump uh, partisan on the jury and some kind of holdout. Um, there's that too, because if we're really at brass tax time, he's thinking, how can I avoid a unanimous verdict? So there's there when, when they're really um, huddling with that, with the new lawyer that you said, but that's really a long time away. And he made, I think, a pretty bad tactical mistake by just um, launching this new litigation uh, right after the search had occurred instead of just letting things sit for and, a while. And his defense has evolved. At one point, he and his supporters were saying, oh, I declassified all these documents. And in the Trump team's latest filing, they don't even bring up that argument. Not a word. Not a word, right? Um, I got to say, the Department of Justice is looking very sort of uh, sophisticated and, and tactically sound here because they anticipated that he might do this. I'm not sure why, but if you look carefully at their, well, first, we people have said this, the search warrant um, invokes three laws, none of which, none of which uh, requires classification. They might be national security docs, but not classified. But then the subpoena itself, it says we want the documents marked classification. In other words, we don't care about some kind of argument that somewhere, you know, you waved your magic wand and declassified them, uh, you know, in the air because that's not what we're asking for. We're asking for the documents that are marked this way. And those documents are, are already, they're you know, dangerous national security material and just the kind of thing that fits the, 
the other statutes. They don't have to be classified. So maybe he just abandoned it because he, that dog really, really, really cannot hunt. Um, and um, but it was it was a, a deafening silence, wasn't it? That not, they don't even have the word. <laughs> it in certainly there. was Harry Lintman. You know, I really enjoy getting your legal perspective with your experience as a former federal prosecutor. Thanks for coming on ACF. We're going to talk about President Biden, the state of the midterms, because the numbers are moving. They're shifting and you know, I'm interested in how much of this is in response to the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago and the legal problems that former President Trump has. We are, well, we're now in September, which means midterm elections are coming up. You know, we used to talk about them six months ago, like, uh, it's so far off. But no, now it's right around the corner and things are heating up. You know, you used to say that during the summer, voters were sort of tuning out, taking vacations. But, you know, there is no vacation from politics these days. Not at all. It's like a 24-7 year-round thing. Nobody knows that better than Anthony Salvanto, the director of elections and polling for CBS News. And the author of Where Did You Get This Number? Anthony, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me once again, Jeff. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. I'm just following what's happening in the political world uh, beyond the Trump investigations, which touches on politics, law enforcement. But it's interesting to me how what's swirling around the former president maybe having an impact on Republican poll numbers heading into the midterms. Is is that what you're seeing in the data? I think it has an impact in the sense of keeping Donald Trump in the news. One thing we do see is that for most voters, they say he's a factor in their vote. Now, contextually, of course, that's something perhaps unusual with a former president in a midterm. Uh, midterms are always certainly to an extent about the current president. But for the former president, you've got a majority saying he's a factor. And for Republicans, that's in some sense a motivating factor. They see what's going on at Mar-a-Lago as a political attempt to damage the president. They stand alone in that from independents and Democrats, majority of each of them see it as more of an attempt to protect national security. But to the extent that Trump remains in the news, I think politically the read here is that you get um, a less focus relatively perhaps on the economy. And it's the economy where the Republicans have had in the polling a larger advantage, Jeff. And uh, I suspect what you just said is why Democrats' chances of maintaining control of Congress are improving. Well, let's not overstate that. Um, you know, what we're seeing is the the Democrats perhaps able to mitigate Republican would-be gains. Um, I think the the clear model right now has the Republicans gaining control if the election were today. Of course, it's not. But 
there's a lot of things that point that way. And the question is how much of a gain? And right now, you're correct. We do see the movement from an estimated 230 seats for Republicans that we took in July. Remember, folks, remember, you need 218 for control. So that'd be a, a majority. And then 226 now. So, yes, that's a movement back away from from more sizable Republican gains. But I think the other dynamic here is people came into this race or this campaign season looking at historical gains for the out party, which tell you that the party, the, you know, the president's par, uh, party would lose seats in a in a midterm. And comparing that event also with the state of the economy, the people, the fact that majority of voters saying things in the country not going well, and all those, which some folks might loosely refer to as the fundamentals, w- would point to a larger expectation for Republican gains. The reality that we're seeing, at least right now, is that it's a 50-50 country, it's closer to something with amounting to smaller gains, and also there are all these other factors in play for voters, one of them being Donald Trump, another being abortion, motivating a lot of Democrats, and then back to the idea of the economy, a little bit of improvement there people are seeing in gas prices, which may which may have help uh, offset. Aren't... President Biden's poll numbers, they're above 40%. I mean, in this environment, that seems like uh, a pretty good number for him at this point. Again, you know, relative to history, you would look at a president's job approval numbers, and certainly there'd be an impact there. This election is no different. Joe Biden is a factor for Republicans. He is a motivating factor, they tell us. So, yes, he is involved. And then regarding that and regarding his approval rating, we do see an increase among registered voters from 42 percent in July to 45 percent now. Now, again, contextually, we know what's happened with with Joe Biden's approval rating. It was high at the start of his term. It declined uh, that first summer after what happened in Afghanistan. It declined with the increase in gas prices, with where people were evaluating the economy negatively or increasingly negatively. All of that is perhaps to be expected for a president as people kind of reason through results, right? They weren't feeling that good about the state of the country. This this increase that we've seen over the last month is important and interesting in part because of who with whom it's among, who it's among. And that is it's Democrats who are starting to improve, Democrats who tell us that they see an improvement in how they think things are going in the country, up from 39% in July to 52% now. The reason that's important, Jeff, is, you know, in any midterm, politically, you've got to have a motivated base. That's especially true for Democrats right now, again, because they're the party and not in the presidency. So the extent to which we see Democrats start to say that they're more supportive of the president that his approval ratings bounce back a little bit from high to higher among them, we we start to see what, what Democrats might, incur, might interpret as encouraging signs, Jeff. We hear this president using terms like semi-fascism, and he's talking about democracy under attack. 
And, you know, I'm I'm wondering if that is a message that is working for him, drawing this contrast between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party at this time when former President Trump is under investigation. Let's talk about what people think the uh, the parties would do if they get into office, because it's important and it, I think it speaks to some of what you're you're getting at. One of the things we've seen about, um, in particular, uh, women voters uh, and those certainly who have been opposed to the overturn of Roe v. Wade is that they think the Republicans would prioritize, among other things, abortion restrictions if they get into majority control. Now, what that does is right, anytime uh, you know, a voter goes to the polls both expecting something in return for their vote, but in many cases, especially in this era of you know what we call negative partisanship, often worried about what the other side might do, and you see that dynamic here. Um, so, to answer your larger question about what it means as we see the candidates start to paint pictures of the other side, I think that's one example of something we see in the data that expectation, and certainly on the Democratic side. Perhaps motivating in the in their in their base voters, motivating for like, women voters, that setting up an expectation that's out there about something that in this case a majority of them do not want. Jeff. What I see, you know, if you look at the Republican argument, and I'm not talking about MAGA Republicans. I'm talking about a Mitch McConnell, what he might say about the economy, inflation, gas prices. They have a pretty good argument. But it, it seems to me that their message isn't getting out right now because of what's happening at Mar-a-Lago and around Mar-a-Lago. And it seems to be hurting Republican uh, candidates on these ballots across the country. What does the data say? The, the biggest question to ask in any election, or one of the biggest, I think, is what is this election about? Um, to the extent that this is about the economy, and frankly, for a majority of voters, they are concerned about that. They do see it as important. Um, then the Republicans have an advantage. And one way to look at that, again, sort of looking ahead at what people expect from their vote, 59% of voters think that the Republicans will prioritize tackling inflation if they gain control and compare that to 48 percent who say they think the Democrats will prioritize inflation if they gain control. So with that gap, coupled with the fact that Republicans are still right now winning voters who are most concerned about the economy, it, it tells you that that's obviously an advantageous issue to, you know, to be at the, the forefront for, for Republicans. Now, again, we've talked a little about Democratic gains in that regard, but we're still working off of a year's worth, over a year's worth of voter frustration. And you and I have talked before about this. We've we've seen voters be frustrated in the past that the Democrats, that Joe Biden, in their minds, weren't doing enough to you know help help alleviate inflation, etc. So to the extent that that stays there, and Democrats might not reverse that overnight. That's advantageous for the Republicans. But these other factors, the former president who, like I said, motivating for Republicans, but a net negative for independents and net, certainly a motivator to vote for Demo uh, among Democrats. 
These other topics, if you take them as distractions from the the economy, um, then certainly that that could you know help uh, help the Democratic causes. Certainly c- could help hold down Republican Republican gains, Jeff. Well, even Mitch McConnell has said that Republicans may not win Senate control, and he cited candidate quality, saying, I think there is probably a greater likelihood the House flips than the Senate. Senate races are just different. Candidate quality has a lot to do with the outcome. I mean, he's saying about saying that about fellow Republicans. Analyze that statement for me. Well, uh, for one thing, he may be looking at it informed by elections uh, in the recent, sometimes not too recent past, where Republicans feel that they nominated candidates and didn't pick up states and Senate races that they that they could have. This year in the primaries, we've seen a really interesting dynamic in that a majority of Republican primary voters have consistently said that they wanted candidates who uh, were endorsed by Donald Trump and many such candidates won, of course, that they were more favorable on balance to people who were uh, candidates who were election deniers. And all of those things came out of the Republican primaries. Now the question becomes, can those candidates in key races appeal to a wider electorate and or can they change the focus of their message? Um in ways that that make them uh, do better in some of these races. Now, in in the case of the Senate, we're going to look a lot at Georgia, at Pennsylvania, at Arizona, as these kinds of cases, as well as many others. The, The dynamic there is a little bit different as well, because these are candidates who've gained a lot of attention in recent weeks. And to that extent, you might see a dynamic especially certainly in polling, where candidate factors loom large, candidate specific factors loom large. And then we'll want to watch the extent to which that differs from perhaps a a nationalized vote that might come along with a House race or that might come along with a House vote where a candidate may not be getting as much much attention in the the public mind. Um, So there again, it's a question of what people think the you know the Republicans or the Democrats will prioritize where they will if they get into uh, if they get into office, Jeff. And what about what the independent voters out there are thinking? In so many of these elections, they are the big prize. How do they feel about the Republicans right now versus the Democrats? The um, to the extent that there are independents, and there's plenty who identify that way, but in practice, and we'll probably talk about this a lot over the course of the election. In practice, a large percent of them actually vote the same way over and over again. They may think of themselves independent, but at the end of the day, they fall to one party or the other. It is the extent to, to which they're out there, though. There's a sense among them right now, not only that, as I mentioned, that Donald Trump is a net negative for them, but also the feeling that they describe the Republicans as having nominated candidates they consider more extreme than those the Democrats nominated. So that's one measure that we've been looking at as people start to get a sense of what the parties stand for. 
and what they're you know what they're going to do. Um, it's certainly something that's popped up at us, and I think that's going to be one of the things that you'll see the Democrats argue as we go forward, right? Saying saying the Republicans aren't um, are out of the mainstream in that regard. You'll start to see. Uh, a debate over how much to talk about 2020. Certainly, we know from the polling that re- voters don't want on balance that discussed beyond the Republican base. Um, so again, it becomes about attention and what what becomes the focus, Jeff. I, you know, I feel sorry because I pepper you with all these questions, but you're so good and volleying back and answering my questions, addressing some of the concerns I might have about things that I see out there. And, and one, th- I have a few more questions, Anthony. I hope you don't mind. I don't. I, I love this stuff, Jeff, <laughs> so I appreciate the chance to talk about it. I know it may sound like uh, like a lot, but it's um, it, it's fascinating. And it's look, it's democracy in action. So It, it really is. And there's so much to talk about. Let's Let's talk about people of color, black female voters in particular, who really were the the driving force behind Joe Biden getting the White House in the first place. Does he still maintain their support? This is a great question because it speaks to whether Joe Biden can sort of hold together the Democratic coalition and also whether he can get turnout in the midterms, which is so important. Um, right now, um, so African-American voters are at two-thirds approval on Joe Biden handling the economy. Um, they're, at, uh, they're overall at, at 74% approval, uh, African-American registered voters, uh, of his job handling overall. Now, typically, we would see African-American voters vote for the Democrat in larger percentages than that. However, um, that doesn't necessarily, that approval, it doesn't necessarily translate directly into vote. You probably see, you almost certainly will see larger, even larger percentages voting for the Democrat. But the fact that there are sizable numbers who approve of him on the economy is good news for the president. Um, and the overall trend among Democrats in Joe Biden and handling the economy is good news. Then when you get to particular places in races and uh, contests, this is important because where can African-American voters make a lot of difference? Well, certainly in Georgia, we're going to watch that Senate race very closely. Certainly in Pennsylvania, where we're going to watch that Senate race very closely. So it's going to be pivotal for the Democrats, not only to have the strong support of black voters, but also to get strong turnout there. And that, when you look at past midterms, you see a great deal of variation in the degree to which uh, voters of color uh, show up and where the midterm electorates often are on balance a little bit older, um, a little bit less diverse than uh, presidential elections. That's certainly a trend that Democrats would like to try to change. Uh, They did a little better on those measures in uh, years like 2018, where they they took the House and and did well. And that's probably a model that they'll aim for again, Jeff. You mentioned Pennsylvania. That 
that Senate race involving John Fetterman versus Dr. Oz. That's one to watch. It's really interesting. I think they're both, you know, they have interesting backgrounds. Everybody knows about Dr. Oz and his history in television. And then there's John Fetterman, who could probably have his own show somewhere. He's, he's another... <laughs> He's another guy that doesn't always fit the mold of, of a candidate, uh, nor does he fit the mold of a candidate that, that you would see for Senate. Are you, um, are you saying that they're, they're not typical candidates? or uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, they're definitely not typical candidates. Um, you know, does Dr. Oz, is he a little too hoity-toity for the, the people of Pennsylvania? Of course, that's what John Fetterman wants you to think. And then Dr. Oz about Fetterman, uh, is he healthy enough to be your senator? Look, you know, the, the people of Pennsylvania will look at this. I think the the dynamic you saw coming out of the primaries was a uh, at least on the case of of dr oz was a great example of the dynamic we were talking about earlier where a candidate gets very tied to donald trump and gets the the trump endorsement or seeks the trump endorsement and that helps or or is seen to help and then the question is, okay, primaries are over. What What is the election about now? Um, to the extent that that can carry the day beyond the Republican base is an open question. And then the other part of this you see is the extent to which now as voters start to get a sense of these candidates, the race is nationalized or the race is localized. So many races are nationalized. You may or may not like the party's nominee, but you want to help, you know, your party win control of the Senate um, or win control of the House. And that goes into voters' motivations. And I think the interesting dynamic you'll see in Pennsylvania is is that. So when you ask the question of, you know, the Fetterman campaign is clearly talking about Dr. Oz as not, you know, having lived long enough in Pennsylvania, therefore, you know, they'll argue he doesn't know the state as well. Well, are voters going to say, but we're really voting on a national level. We're really thinking about the Republicans or their party, if they're a Republican, taking control of the Senate, and therefore that gets downweighted. Or are they going to think more about local issues, things specific to the state, in which case the proxy there would be, well, if someone has lived there or had more experience in the state that they'll ostensibly know more about it. So that's how the mechanics of that figure into a voter's decision making, which will certainly be um, interesting moving forward. I mean, I think generally we've certainly seen, or at least as one proxy for the measure, if you look at the amount of crossover voting that we see in House and Senate races over the years, that's declined. And, and you're looking at you know less than one in 10, um, sometimes far less than one in 10 people who uh, cross party lines when they vote. And that's one proxy way of saying that the elections have become increasingly nationalized. So this will be one sort of test of that. In how many days? Do you count the days? Do you count the weeks? <laughs> a little bit of a little bit neither because early voting will begin much sooner than election day in a lot of these key places. Uh, and mail voting will begin much sooner in these key places. Now to some extent, 
that's to some extent that's already baked in because the person who rushes out to cast their ballot uh, for a candidate obviously isn't saying, wait, I need another four weeks to make up my mind, right? They probably, we probably already know what they're, what they're going to do because they vote for the same party all the time. Um, having said that, I think one of the really interesting dynamics this year, and this will be true for us at the, at the decision desk as well, is seeing the balance between early voting and, and that includes mail voting and uh, in-person voting. We uh, often see, or lately we see Democrats uh, using mail balloting for an assortment of reasons. It's more convenient. They can, they can uh, cast the vote when they, when they like. Um, how much will that be in play versus the election day vote when you often see Republicans turning out much more uh, during election day, in part, many believe, many of us believe, including me, that that's partly a factor of the former president, Donald Trump, um, you know, disparaging mail voting a lot. So there is going to be that dynamic. You're going to see as you get into these states, I'm sure, people saying, oh, Democrats are voting more in the mail balloting, more registered Democrats have signed up for mail ballots. And that's all going to come in advance of the election. And people like me are going to go, hold on, wait a second. We know that Republicans vote more on election day. So let's not make too much of that. In fact, many times you see a big surge in turnout of Republicans on Election Day. Um, so you have to account for that. And that's where you and I get to into November until you actually see what's uh, what the results are, Jeff. All right. So I'm going to start previewing, teasing our election coverage early because I know that a lot of thought is going into this midterm and we're going to have you covered throughout our different platforms with the man, the myth, Anthony Salvanto, CBS News Executive Director of Elections and Surveys, leading the way with his numbers. You can't argue against the numbers. Anthony, thanks for your time. <laughs> thanks, Jeff. <laughs> it is September, which... If you are a sports fan, this is a great time of year. Here's why. College football is starting. Pro football is starting. Hockey is going to start. NBA. Like, this is the convergence of all the major sports in this country. I wanted to talk about Tom Brady. You know, everybody talks about how good looking he is. You know, he's got the supermodel wife. He's making tens of millions of dollars a year just to be Tom Brady and to play, of course. I mean, yeah, he's won all those Super Bowls. So anyway, this past week, you know, there was all this controversy about where Tom was. He was absent from training camp for about 11 days. He came back. And of course, the media, because we're nosy, they wanted to know what he was doing. Here was his response it's all personal you know everyone's got different situations they're dealing with so we all have really unique challenges to our life and uh you know we're i'm 45 years old man there's a lot of going on so you know you just gotta try to figure out life the best you can and um you know it's a uh continuous process so all right so you heard his response there was something about that response that i really appreciated it was real. You know, Tom Brady is a legend. 
Everybody thinks he's Mr. Perfect. But in that response, he showed us that he was not perfect. All right, listen to what he said. I'm 45 years old, man. There's a lot of expletive going on, so you just have to try and figure out life the best you can. You know it's a continuous process, is what he said. All right, even for a guy who seems to have it all, he's got problems he's got to deal with too, just like you and me and everybody else. The rest of us mere mortals. So I appreciated him saying that. You could sort of see if you looked, if you saw this statement that he made to the media, you could see it in his eyes. You could sort of see it in his face that he was obviously dealing with something that was important to him, important to his family, just like the rest of us. Here's what else he said. I played a lot of football in my day, so, you know, a lot of seasons, a lot of games, a lot of practices. I feel pretty good. I feel good. I've played football for a long time. I'm pretty good at it. He went on to say, it doesn't take me long for me to remember how to play it. All right, so why do I care? I'm not a fan of his. But I've been thinking about what he said. Because we all have challenges, day in, day out. We all have family members who have challenges, and we have to support them. You can go through adversity. You can go through hard times. But don't forget who you are. And what makes you good at what you do. That's the message I got. I hope you get the same message or draw whatever from his statement you can. Doesn't mean you have to root for him on Sunday. That is America Change Forever for this week. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. For now, I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America Change Forever. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.